Well, we've been talking the last couple of weeks about what I'm addressing as the uh, em- enemies of the heart or the challenges of the heart, and we talked about how we want to hit these things head on and deal with them in a powerful way, that, that these are things that creep into our lives, these are things that uh, take hold of us in a certain way. If we're, not, uh, if we're not careful that we recognize that they're there, they can have a tendency to really disrupt our relationships with each other as well as with God, and, and can also distort who we are as, as individuals, especially as Christians. And uh, the first week I talked to you about that first piece was guilt, and guilt is the way I defined it as that uh, we need to de- deal with guilt head on, and guilt are those moments in life when, when I uh, feel like I've you know, done something, and in order for me to not feel guilty about it, I'm going to go to God and I'm going to say, God, I, I did this. And we learn that we're supposed to confess our sins to our Heavenly Father, but we also recognize that if we don't go eyeball to eyeball with each other, that if I've wronged you, that, that, that I can ask God to forgive me, but until I come to you and say, this really grieves my heart, how can we restore this relationship? That guilt is the emotion that takes over our heart and not restoration. Pastor Pam talked to us about anger and there's a reason why I picked her to do that sermon that day. No, I'm just kidding. Now, Pastor Pam talked to us about anger, and, and what she reminded us about anger was that it's one of those emotions that, if we're not careful, can really make the worst come out in us. And when we get angry at each other, we become a person we're not supposed to be. But more importantly, we begin to see the Imago Dei or the individual of that person of God. We begin to distort that image. And we no longer see them in who God has created them to be, but our anger overwhelms our relationship with them. And we learn that we need to let go of that anger. We also learn in that message that there are times where anger can be used in a righteous way, like to overcome evil or injustice in some the things that we see happening and have happened in the world. Last week, I led us through an opportunity to look at greed. And uh, we talked about how greed is, is getting to that point in time in our life where, where we begin to take all the credit for everything that we have. That when abundance comes, and we looked at the um, parable of the man who uh, had the overabundance and began to build more barns, uh, we looked at that and said that if we have an abundance, that the question isn't, what can I do with all that I now have? But, but more importantly, the question needs to be turned more toward heaven and ask the question, God, what do you want me to do with this newfound abundance that I have, and how can that abundance be used to bring greater glory to God in the kingdom's purpose? Now, I shared with you my own thoughts about that, that there's nothing wrong with having wealth, there's nothing wrong with, with being a person who has things, but we need to be very careful that we're not worshiping that, but more importantly, that we're using that for God's glory rather than for our own. Now, today we're, we're completing our series um, on, on um, uh, dealing with things head on, and I want to talk about jealousy. And jealousy is this uh, thing that we need to confront. Before I go into that, let me put in a plug for next week. I know we're well after Easter, but next week I'm going to go off the trail a little bit and not uh, be in a uh, preaching series. And I'm going to talk to us about the proof of the resurrection. And as, I, as we got through Easter and as we got through uh, that, that wonderful time in our Christian heritage, I've actually had people ask me questions about, is there really proof of the resurrection? And, and what is it that Christians should believe about that? And why is it that folks who struggle with believing in the resurrection, how can we listen to the arguments that they have and have a conversation about that? So uh, I uh, pray for me as, as that message is being finalized, but it's a message that I think will make some sense for all of us. 
So as we get to this time of jealousy, may I ask that we take an opportunity and pause for a second as we come to God in prayer. Loving God, as we open our hearts and our minds and um, just everything that in our being, we, we pray that we would be the clay and you as the potter to mold us into what you are asking us to become. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So we might ask the question about as adults, uh, should we really be jealous? I mean, it, it, and no, no um, ill feelings here, but you know, it sounds kind of like grade schoolish, right? It, uh, mostly we think about kids who are jealous. But when we think about it, are there times that we as adults become jealous? I uh, had somebody come up to me between services today and say, you know, Pastor, I didn't think I was ever jealous about anybody or anything, but, but today really has me thinking. So, so that's really our hope as preachers every week is that we get you thinking a little bit, uh, that we nudge you a little bit into, out of a little bit of complacency and, and move into a place of seeking God's desires. But it sounds a little middle school-esque, but then I looked at my own life, and I thought to myself, where am I finding that I'm jealous? And there's, I, listen, I uncovered a couple places. First place is, I admire these pastors that can preach a 10-minute sermon, because I can't. And all of you are going like, you're right, you can't, you can't do that. I'm, I get jealous of that. You know, they, they, they could preach a powerful 10-minute message, and it makes sense, and I can't do that. I, for some reason, it takes me longer. And there's another thing I thought about where I get jealous. I get jealous when I uh, go walking down the beach and I wear my big, you know, wavy shirt that kind of gives me more room to move around in. And I'm feeling comfortable as I'm walking down the beach and I look and then there's somebody, a, a man who doesn't have his shirt on and he's got these really nice developed pecs and abs and, and all that stuff. And I look at that and I go like, man, you know, why, why, why don't I... Why am I not in shape like that? And then somebody overheard me having that conversation with myself, and they said, it's okay, Pat, Bob, round is a shape. So I, you know, thought about that. But I get jealous a little bit in some of those instances, and, and when I think about those things, it, it kind of gets me to that point of thinking a little bit further. Now, some of you might say, the things that you just mentioned really are nonsense, I mean, is that really all that you have and, and all that's there? And I think the more important thing about it is if jealousy goes unchecked, it can become very dangerous. It's dangerous because it not only shapes, but it, it can misshape who we are as individuals. It can misshape and it can shape the attitudes that we have toward other people. It can shape and misshape how we deal with our spouses and our loved ones. It can shape and misshape how we see and, and deal with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. It can shape and misshape. And when somebody is around us that is a constant reminder of what we are not, it's a very great challenge on the relationship that we have. Eventually, jealousy can take control of our attitude uh, towards other people, and it really has nothing to do with that other individual. And what it has more to do with is how we are perceiving how they are somehow prospering or have prospered or somehow gotten to the place that we have been striving to get to, and they're there and we think that we haven't. And all of a sudden, we think because they're there and we're not, we don't want to like them. Now think about that for a second. I mean, how many folks do you know that, that uh, got somewhere, um, and, and just because they got somewhere, you didn't like that? 
And see, if left unchecked, jealousy can breed resentment, and then re- but then resentment then starts saying, well, there has to be justification for that. And when people start challenging us, people that love us and say, why are you resentful to that person? Why are you jealous of that person? Then we have to come up with this concoction that says, well, I need to think of the reason why that, and I need to justify why I don't like that individual or those individuals that are there. And so it begs the question this morning, who are you jealous of? What are you finding yourself to be jealous of? Resentment can get to us. And and here's a question that might bring some light to undiscovered jealousy, and that is, what category of people do you secretly resent? Do you secretly resent supermodels? Do you secretly resent stay-at-home moms, retirees, successful people? Do you secretly resent athletes because of the life that they live? I mean, who is it that you resent as you look at those things? People with money. And if you continue to dig deeper into that, you'll begin to start noticing that it's really a manifestation that's going on more in your mind and more in your heart than it is the reality of the person or the individual in whom you are not wanting to get to know even better. But when we think about this, this stuff has been going on since the beginning of time. I mean, Cain was jealous over his brother Abel. Back in the story of Genesis, in the very beginning, you know, Cain kills his brother Abel because he's jealous that God loves Abel more than he. We see, we see jealousy between Jacob and Esau, the two brothers, of I, or the two sons of Isaac. We see jealousy that comes in the forms of Joseph and his brothers, and his brothers sell him into slavery and tell their father that he's dead, all because they felt and were jealous that Joseph had a better relationship with their father than they. The New Jersey Devils recently, they were jealous of the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? Because we smacked them and beat them. And then, of course, we can't forget Peter Parker. He's really jealous of Tony Stark, isn't he? Spider-Man to Iron Man. Because Iron Man's got it all. He's wealthy, he's good-looking, and Peter Parker, well, he just doesn't have that. But when we think of jealousy, we, we think of the things that others have. We, we look at them and we say, well, they've got the look, they've got the talent, they've got the health, they've got the smarts, they've got the money. And, and we could just d- develop this list on and on and on and on. And so we think that we have a problem with that person simply because we see that they have something that we don't. And some would argue that our problem isn't with the person that we're angry at or the person that we're jealous or envious of, but some would argue that our problem really is with God. Because when we look at it, we say, well, God must love them more because they have more than I. So God, you owe me something. Why don't I have what they have? And jealousy sets in. I mean, here's a hypothetical. Let's say you live in a neighborhood and down the road, uh, you're aware of a family that's there, and you know that the husband has uh, many illicit affairs and uh, is not faithful to, to his wife. You know that he doesn't spend any time with the kids. You know that he travels around all these exotic places. You see the car they drive, and you look at yourself and you say, I'm faithful, I'm monogamous in my relationship with my spouse, and, and, and I love my kids, and I pour all my time in my kids. But look, he's got the nice car, he's got the bigger house, he's got the big bank account, he's got the big this, the big, big that, and I'm struggling to make ends meet. God, what's wrong with this situation? Do you see how quickly jealousy can come in? And it's in those moments when we see others or perceive others as having more than us that we are convinced that God is on their side and not ours. 
and we yearn for that relationship that comes there. But I'm convinced that, that in every relationship, I'm convinced that in every situation, I'm convinced that every force involved in relation struggles that we have as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as church people, in, in, our, in our marriages, in our dating, in our community, and all those things, I believe that uh, every one of those relationships has a problem, and it boils down to this conflict that we encounter in life can be reduced and boiled down to one solitary problem, and it's simpler for us to understand than we think. Here it is. You ready to learn what it is? James says it. James says this in chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? That is a question that we have to ask ourselves. What is it that's causing the fights and the quarrels in, in, in my relationships? You know, we'll look at the word quarrel, and we'll quickly want to justify or oversimplify, and what we'll say is, he's talking about some egregious thing, because only in egregious situations do we find ourselves angry at one another. But in the Greek, the word quarrel that James uses is a mere disagreement. It means a disagreement. It means arguing. It means holding a grudge. It means resentment. So, so are you in a disagreement with anybody? Are you arguing with anybody? Are you holding a grudge against somebody? Do you have resentment? James says that that is the center of the problems that we experience as human beings. And we are called to look at this into a greater light. James peels back the he said, she said. And James says it's not about blaming somebody else, but he says what causes the quarrels and fights among you, don't they come from your desires that battle where? Within you. Notice he doesn't say that these quarrels and fights and the problems that you're having with others is because of them. He says it's because of you. What is it that's battling inside of you? So, so James seems to think that those external conflicts are a direct result of the internal conflicts that happen in our life. If I'm not happy with my life, guess what? I'm not going to be happy with you. If I'm struggling inside, or if I am on the verge of breaking down, so to speak, I am not going to get along with you. Because what's happening in me, James says, is going to come to the surface externally and it's just going to spray you like ooze all over the place and it's going to cover you with that. And he says, and guess what? If, if you're not happy inside of your heart either, then you're going to do that to me. And that's when we quarrel. That's when we fight because of what's inside of us we're not happy with. So what's causing this internal struggle? Here's what he says. You want something, but you don't get it. We want something, but we don't get it. Because we want something and we don't get it, that's why we get so angry at, our, at, at each other. And James says that that's what causes the clash that's in there for us. So the source of every conflict that you and I will ever experience boils down to this. We can't get what we want. And when we can't get what we want, life isn't good. You know, the world-renowned statement that shook the world back in the 70s and made the world a bold new place. And when this line came out and this, these words were said, the world was never the same. We can't get what we want, but Burger King said you can't have it your way. 
do you see? The term want that James uses inside of this text, the term want is a very specific meaning. It means to yearn for. It means to strive for. It means to strongly desire. So this isn't some casual feeling. This means kind of I'm putting my whole being, I'm putting my whole life, I'm putting every essence as to who I am inside of this, and, and I'm yearning and I'm lusting and I'm strongly desiring for this, and until I get what I want, I'm not going to be happy and I'm going to be angry at you. Now, believe it or not, Patty and I saw this last weekend. No, it was not a rift between us. It's something that we observed with our grandkids. We were out at breakfast, and the youngest grandson had sausage on his plate. The oldest grandson did not have sausage on his plate, and he wants sausage. And he was going to do whatever he could do to get sausage. So he was mad at his brother because his brother had the had the inkling to go stand in the sausage line, whereas the older one didn't know he was supposed to do that. And then it broke out because the older one began to show his primal place in the family as the firstborn and as older and stronger as he quickly snatched the sausage off of the younger brother's plate. You see, sometimes we will do whatever we can to get what we want. James says you desire but you don't have, so you kill, you snatch sausage. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Now the word kill is not meant to be a legalistic or a real thing. It's a metaphor. It's hyperbole, I should say. And kill, it's kind of like when Jesus said if you see someone inappropriately with your eye, you need to poke it out. He didn't say, you know, he wasn't telling us to go actually poke our eyes out. What he was saying is, this is so important. I need you to really see, no pun intended, the importance of this because it's such bizarre behavior I'm going to ask you to do that tells you how important it is that you not do this. So James says that we kill and we covet. He is saying that we need to make sure because that word kill, that word covet means to hotly pursue. It means to strive after. It means to be all in. He wants us to have the image of someone who has a need, and that need can never be met. But in the end, you can't get what you want. So the desire James is referring to in the passage represents this unquenchable thirst that we have, this unquenchable appetite that, that we all possess. We hunger for these things. We thirst for this. We, we hunger for stuff. Say stuff. Stuff. That's a church-friendly word. We can't use, you know, uh, the other words, but stuff. We have stuff. We, like, we, we hunger after money. We hunger after recognition, after power, after success, after relationships. We hunger after partnerships. We hunger after sex. We hunger after all these things that the world has. And James says it doesn't matter because no matter how much we hunger and strive for any of that, we will never be satisfied. In fact, if we read the writings, the wisdom writings of Solomon, he says, I've had everything, but still I'm, I, I, I'm missing something. We can't be there. So the issue in every quarrel is that we want to get our own way. But what we have to learn relationally is we all have to take ownership in these relationships that we have. James knew that until I acknowledge that I am part of the problem between us, that it's never going to 
never going to be resolved. James says, until you recognize that you are a problem between us, this will never be reconciled. So we have to own it. We have to look at it. We can't just dance around it and constantly play the blame game and say, well, it's their fault. They did it to me. Look, I'm as clean as can be. I'm the angel. See the halo? And, and we can't do that. We have to own it. Because every relationship requires two people working hard, working hard to make it happen. So what's the solution? James says, here's the solution. You do not have because you do not ask God. You do not ask God, and that's why you don't have. And let's back up for a second and think about that. Whenever we are hungry or lustful or, or pursuing something, it's usually from the person that we're angry at. They have it, therefore we want it. Or, or we turn to the people in our inner circle that, whom we love the most. Who do we quarrel and fight with the most? Likely the people we're closest to. And James says, quit turning to that person and setting a, a bar that they can't meet. That person cannot give you what you need. Only God can do this. And he rightly so, he tells us, and he instructs us to bring all of our desires to God. But then he says to us something really important. He says, bring all your desires to God, but be aware. God can say no. What? You just said, bring all my things to God, all my desires, all my wants to God, and God can say no? And this is really important. For many of us, we really struggle with this because we think once we become a believer in Jesus Christ, once we have prayed upon it, that we're supposed to get it. And folks, nowhere in the Bible do I read that it's supposed to be that way. Yes, we're supposed to ask God. Yes, we're supposed to pray. Some would say, well, if God can say no, then why would God say no? Because God knows, believe it or not, what's best for you. God knows that even though you think that you should have this or be in this situation or be glorified in this or to accept that responsibility or whatever it is, God knows in those moments whether it's right or it's wrong. So we need to listen. What is God saying? And God loves us even enough that he won't always grant us what we ask for because in order to do that, it will harm other people. Did you catch that? God loves us so much that he won't always give us what we ask for because it might harm other people. So as we bring these things to God and we're bringing these things to prayer, it, it begs the question, then if I'm supposed to pray, then why should I do that? Because prayer is entering into a trust relationship with God. Prayer is entering into a covenant where we enter with God, where we trust God. When we say, God, this is really what I think I need, but I'm going to give this to you, I'm going to turn this over to you, and we trust God in those situations. So therefore we pray, acknowledging our trust in God. We pray in those instances. The scripture is clear. It says that God is a source of all good things, not that God is a source of all wished for things. God wants us to learn to take no for an answer because he wants us to place this in his hands. James had one more thing to say. It's in, ver it's in chapter one. He said, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heaven, heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. 
Listen very closely. Every good thing comes from God. Every good thing comes from our Heavenly Father. Every good thing comes solely from God. And it's more the reason for us to trust God because God promises to be good. God promises to care for us. And as we are holy and God is holy and as we are walking closer to God, we begin to understand this. So at the end of the day, the words of the great British theologian really are true, Mick Jagger, who said this, you can't always get what you want. Come on, folks, the 9 o'clock service had it just like that. (laughs) We can't always get what we want. Nobody can. Our appetites are too big. The question is, are we going to leave it with our Heavenly Father? This is the only option that leads us to peace. All the other options lead us to nothing but frustration. Take it to God. And with the power of God, deal with it head on.